Let's open up again. We're going to be, uh, Lord willing, finishing in Romans 12 this morning. So let's turn there uh, one final time. And uh, when you get there, if you'll stand, I'll read the passage. I'm going to read the same passage we looked at last week. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. And be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, again we come before you asking for your help to do that which we cannot do. To open our eyes to understand. Lord, that our intellect alone would not be fed, although that is important. But that these words would sink down into our very soul. That these words would affect how we think about you. How we respond to those who are brethren, how we respond to those that are not. And Father, we know we live in a world that's very hostile to truth. And I pray you'd help us to fight this warfare with the right weapons, the right timing, the right viewpoint. Instruct us this morning, Lord. Make us more fitted soldiers in this battle. In Jesus' name, Amen. Of course, we're going to jump in basically where we left off last week. Uh, and our topic, remember, as we're walking through Romans 12, there's a gateway at the beginning that if our lives aren't laid down as a living sacrifice. And by the way, uh, that's not a one-time thing. I don't believe the Bible teaches you lay yourself down as a sacrifice once. Uh, this is something that is going to be a daily occurrence. That's part of walking in the Spirit. Don't we all wish... Uh, we could make a one-time choice to be sanctified, and that would be the end of the battle. Most of you found by experience that is not the case. Your flesh is waiting to greet you when you look in the mirror the next morning. And this uh, certainly is a warfare that we fight. This, uh, this chapters we went through it, talked about the Christian as the member, a sibling in a family, as a member of a body. And of course, we're looking at this as a Christian as a, a soldier in a battle. And I made the comment last week that this passage that I just read, I probably don't even need to remind you. The things I just read run contrary to our nature. These are not things we automatically do. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit spills ink in the Scriptures to pen these words towards us. Right Now, it's, that was true of the things we talked about in relation to other brethren. It's especially true relating to those who are far more difficult to deal with. 
I mentioned that uh, this has to do, these verses, with those that are outside the household of faith. And all of us have seen that phenomenon. Yes, we live in a hostile world when it comes to the truth of God, uh, but there are those who are at least somewhat sympathetic. They're not overtly against where you stand as a Christian. They may even defend you or stick up for you. And there's been many instances of that in history that all of us have read and we've seen it in our own life. And this passage is not talking about those ones uh, that uh, maybe are a little bit easier to have compassion on. What it's referring to primarily is our dealing with those whom the Bible refers to as our enemies. Again, the real enemy is not the flesh and blood. It's the spiritual forces behind them. But we all know that people can come across as enemies. And that's why the Bible uh, refers to them as that in this passage. Uh, Now, these are people that are openly spiteful against you. Maybe directly to your face. Uh, maybe just behind your back. You feel like they make your existence difficult. Their hatred can only be explained in spiritual terms. By the way, this is referring to enemies that are enemies for the Word of God's sake, not enemies we've made by our own disobedience. Let's make sure we keep the two separate. It's like Peter said, what glory is it if you be buffeted for your faults? It's not persecution. If you act foolishly and take a beating for that. That's what we had coming to us. But this is talking about the treatment of those that when you are walking in obedience to the Lord, they rise up against you and hate you. Now I'd made the statement that the Bible does not tell us to do nothing. The Bible does not tell us to run or to play passive. The Bible actually teaches us to destroy them, although in a different way than we might think. Properly understood, that's exactly what this passage is teaching. Destroying them with goodness. Turning the enemy into a friend. I think sometimes people get the wrong idea that the Spirit-filled Christian is a passive person. I mean, if you were to back away for a minute and answer this question in a broad sense, what does the Bible teach in relation to how you are to relate to enemies... Would you put it in the category of active or passive? I think many times people get the idea that Christians' relation to those that hate them is nothingness. Just lay down and take your beating. Just do nothing. Just wait. Just sit back and let go and let God, someone say. But what I, what I want to point out is this passage is telling us to be very, very active in the situation. It's not just to do nothing. It doesn't mean just hide in the corner and let life run you over. I mean, a basic study of the Spirit-filled life will reveal real Christianity is indeed active. It's on the march. It's expectant. It's triumphant. You take the ninefold fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is hiding and silence and fearing and waiting and cowering and doubting. No, the fruit of the Spirit is forward motion. Intentional direction, love, joy, peace. So in dealing with an enemy, we're not called to merely be passive. You are to actively try to destroy an enemy by making them a friend. Of course, if a lost man who dies, now you've lost an enemy. But if that man becomes a child of God, you've lost an enemy. You've gained a friend. And if you survey this passage, it's full of verbs and forward direction. 
Words like bless and provide and live and give place and feed and give Him drink and finally overcome. Are those words of inactivity? Not hardly. Mention Acts 7, Saul had thought he destroyed Stephen, but Saul himself was the one who was destroyed and turned into a child of God. But it's interesting, you follow the record, you get to Acts 16, and this man who had been the destroyer is now a destroyer of a different sort, isn't he? Here he is locked up in chains for his faith in Christ, and all of a sudden here comes this big burly enemy, this jailkeeper at Philippi, Remember the man crumples down and cries out, what must I do to be saved? You see, an enemy was laid there at the foot of the cross. He was turned into a friend, turned into a brother. You and I, if you are a Christian, were an enemy of God and He actively destroyed that enmity and made you His child. He showed you His love while you were yet still in your state of deadness. So all right. Scripturally speaking, how do you destroy an enemy? In verse 14, part of it's going to be with speech. Notice verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. First of all, the word persecute does not just mean you run into them and they make life difficult. The word persecute actually carries with it the idea of pursuit, of chasing. Those who persecute you are those who are actively coming after you to do you harm. Now, how are you to deal with such a person? He says to bless them. The word bless actually means eulogize. Speak good things about it. Now, let's admit, sometimes this is one of the hardest things a Christian is told to do, isn't it? Doesn't that require you to search your own heart? Doesn't that require you to try to look for the good? Sometimes it's hard to do that. It means to invoke blessing upon them, to speak whatever good things you can rightfully speak. Not flattery, not making things up. I think part of what this does is check us to make sure we're seeing the situation balanced. How many of you found sometimes somebody doing you harm, you tend to skew it a little too far when things really come to light? I think that's human tendency. I've done that many times. I know what they're thinking. Do you? Do you really? And by the way, what's the greatest blessing you can seek for such a person like this who's an enemy of God? You can pray for their soul. I mean, have you not found you can't pray earnestly for somebody's conversion to Christ and remain furious at them for very long? Those two desires can't reside side by side. The one is going to shove the other one out. You could think of the day when they're going to be sentenced to the lake of fire. You could think of the fact there's condemnation right now biting on top of their head. I read recently about one of the times John Wesley was heckled by a crowd and sometimes the hecklers grew quite violent throwing massive rocks and trying to beat him to death with clubs. On one of the occasions in London, 
This crowd of mockers showed up as he's preaching in the open air. And this is something that happened a number of times. And they say Wesley was actually very adept at dealing with it calmly. They didn't get him rattled. Well, on such occasion, this group shows up and just as he begins to preach, they start screaming and shouting and scorning to drown out his voice. Well, he continues preaching for a moment and then he calmly turns to them and he said, friend, I'm offering you deliverance from your hard and cruel master. Talking about the devil. Boy, that hit its mark. Guys went silent. This guy actually cares for us. They at least listened to the message. I don't know what happened beyond that. But he says, bless or eulogize and curse not. The word curse isn't talking about swearing. That's how we tend to think of it. But the word curse basically is saying uh, when it's in the power to do something, it's like Jesus when He cursed the fig tree. He had the power to make it wither. So the word is used of those that have the power to do something and they have a devastating effect on it. But in our case, where we don't have the power to do such things, the idea is invoking God's destructive power on top of somebody. It's praying in an imprecatory manner. Lord, you saw what they did. Strike them dead. I've had it up to here. I'm sick of them. Oh, God, beat them senseless. Friends, listen, that's vastly different than praying legitimately for their eyes to be opened. See, one of them is asking for their ruin. The other one is asking for the greatest need that they really have. Remember Stephen, when he died, he cries out, Lord, lay not the sin to their charge. And so he, he showed a concern for the damnation of those who had just stoned him to death. Most of you have probably read the last words of William Tyndale, Bible translator who was strangled and burned at the stake. Remember what his last words were? Just before he died, he screamed out, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And within three years, that wicked Henry Henry VIII made it a law that every single parish church had to have an English-speaking Bible available to the people. You see... God answered that prayer. I will tell you numerous times, I have seen God specifically answer a prayer, praying for somebody when I'm asking God to vex their soul with a massive weight and burden. But you see, we can ask that when that's really what's needed. We can't fight spiritual battles in the energy of the flesh. I mean, if somebody's taken the position they're not going to hear truth, the greatest gift you can give that person is to pray for God to change the situation. And if you take it consistently in prayer, what happens? God deals with your heart on the matter too. It's a win-win situation. Now how about regarding payback, verse 17? Recompense to no man evil for evil. That means setting the record straight or evening the score. The same Greek words also translated reward or pay or render. In other words, don't make the mistake, don't fall into the trap of trying to pay somebody back. Now I think it's implied in this text that God may test you on this and actually give you opportunity 
to settle the score and put it right in your lap. And what are you going to do with it? Back when I was a fishing guide years ago, I remember one of my clients telling me a story. On this note, this was a lost man, but it was a actually rather amusing story. But he told when he was in college, uh, he had turned in a paper to a college professor, and there was some extenuating circumstance, and he didn't get it in on time, and his grade was marked down. And so he goes to the professor and he says, you know, this is what happened. Can't you make an exception? The professor says, well, if I make an exception for you, I have to make an exception for everybody. Here's your lower grade. Well, fast forward several years, and this young student had become a state trooper. And he pulls over a man for speeding. Well, guess who it was? Then he walks up to the window, and he sees the professor in there. And he says, you know you were speeding? And the guy says, yes. And he begins to give an excuse. I'm trying to get somewhere. I've got to get there on time. Can't you please just let it go? And he said, if I make an exception for you, I've got to make an exception for everybody. Here's your ticket. <laughs> Doesn't human nature desire that opportunity, though, honestly? But friends, listen, God may lay that in your lap. He may give you situations where you can settle the score and appear righteous. And nobody will know about it except you and God. Now, when you're put in that situation, if only God knows the motive, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to settle the score? Are you going to take steps to avoid that? The Lord says, don't pay back evil for evil. Verse 17, the, the second half of that's an interesting statement. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now, casual reading sounds like it's saying be honest. It's actually not what it's saying. We're going to dig into these words a little bit. It actually has everything to do with the statement we just read. Let me explain. The word provide means to meditate beforehand. The word honest means beautiful or virtuous. So, Here's what it's saying in a nutshell. It says, don't pay anyone back evil for evil. But then he's saying, have a determined plan in place about how to biblically treat such a person so that when opportunity arises, you're not left to mere passions in the heat of the moment. Understand what I'm saying? He's saying meditate beforehand how to handle situations virtuously and beautifully in the sight of God so that when those situations present themselves to settle the score, your mind is already prepared to handle it correctly and to honor God in the situations. It means think through your actions, the possibility for failure on your part. Make sure you leave the fragrance of Christ. Where's the life lived? It's lived in the mind. Every single one of you knows what it's like to recompense somebody in the corridors of your mind. You know what it's like to silence that person in an argument mentally. You know what it's like to fantasize about how you're going to get even, about how you're going to deal with it, about the day they face shame because of what they did to you. I can say that definitively because I possess the same nature you do. And the Lord is saying... Think through beforehand how to handle these things. I mean, what's the greatest example of that in the Old Testament? Do you think Joseph ever deliberately thought through how he would treat his brothers? Keep in mind, he remembered those dreams from when he was a young man. 
And when he became prime minister of Egypt, you can bet he knew someday those brothers were going to show up and bow down and that he's now the most second powerful man on earth. I mean, he could have been just licking his chops at how he was going to deal with his brothers. But see, Joseph's right handling of the situation was not a product of happenstance. It was a product of Joseph meditating beforehand how he was going to deal with the situation when it presented itself. I don't think Joseph let himself go down the pathway mentally of getting even. The Lord doesn't want us to do that either. That battle is lost in the mind. And if we're not thinking on the right things, we're not going to do the right things when the opportunity presents itself. I think it's amazing Joseph provided things honest in the sight of all men and glorified God in the middle of pagan Egypt. You think Pharaoh ever heard the whole story? I wager he did. Say, Joseph, uh, how'd you end up a slave anyhow? Well, you mean those same brothers you forgave? How could you do that? Pharaoh, let me tell you something about the God I know. God of sovereignty and power and wisdom. Verse 18. If it be possible, as much as lieth with you, live peaceably with all men. In other words, in any way you can conscientiously obey the Lord's principles while giving up your liberties even to maintain peace, do it. Show that we serve the Prince of Peace. I've run across Christian brethren. I suppose I've been this way at times. But just not happy without some sort of disagreement. Eagerly crutch clutching to their own rights so much that they'll become a stench in any neighborhood, all the while claiming persecution for their faith. It's good to ask ourselves from time to time, am I willing to lay aside liberties? Not for Christian people only, but for an enemy with the express purpose that they might come to Christ. You think it was easy for Paul to bow to the dictates of these scrupulous and ungodly Jews in different places he went? You think it was difficult for some of those early preachers to submit to something like circumcision in adulthood? Not because they were commanded to, but because they knew it would be a hindrance to the gospel in certain cases. You remember Titus and Timothy? One of them had it done, the other one didn't because of the reasoning behind it. You see, they were willing to give some of those liberties up. That, by the way, is what Paul meant when he said he became all things to all men. It's not talking about imbibing in sin. It's talking about he was willing to give things up he could have legitimately done so that he wasn't an offense to even these people that were his enemies. It's a good gauge, I think, to check ourselves when you... Complain about a person's sinfulness? Why are you doing that? Is it because of legitimate concern for them, the fact that they're an enemy of God? Or is it because they're not behaving the way you think they should? Boy, does that make a difference. Look at verse 19, concerning vengeance or revenge. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Now, if recompense or payback is evening the score, 
Revenge is ending the game with a decisive victory. Vengeance is taking recompense to a higher level. It's this, this pursuit of making another person suffer for whatever suffering they may have caused you. It's to deal them some sort of blow from which they may never recover. And they'll certainly learn not to toy with the likes of you again. Now, notice how this verse starts. Dearly beloved. Well, how fitting He would remind us here that we're dearly beloved by the God of heaven even though we're utterly undeserving. You see, that's a subtle reminder that God has been infinitely patient with us despite our complete anarchy. I mean, before He talks about you taking vengeance on somebody else, He says, Dearly beloved. Think about that. In other words, nobody could ever sin against God or sin against me to the degree I have offended God or you have offended God. That's because of His perfect character, number one, His holiness. It's also because He has the sovereign right and owns all things. Have you ever had somebody that you own sin against you? You ever had somebody that you created out of nothing sin against you? You ever been perfectly sinless and had all power to hurl into hell at this very second and had some defiant, pathetic little creature you fashioned out of the dust raise his puny fist and tell you to get off your throne? Not hardly. He says, Dearly beloved, ones whom God has placed His affection on for no reason in you, but reason that exists in Himself alone. You don't take vengeance. Now notice the reason. It's not because vengeance isn't going to happen. Our desire for justice in itself is not bad. It's a reflection of the image of God we were made in. You and I intrinsically want to see people get their just desserts. I want to be careful saying this, but that mindset is not always, always a problem. Listen, God is a just judge. You ever hear about somebody who's gotten away with murder after murder after murder and they finally get brought to trial and they die an 85-year-old man in prison? And you read that and you're thinking, it's just too bad they were never brought to justice. Not yet. Not yet. You think what an earthly court can inflict is anything compared to what's coming? I mean, let's face it. Why do you and I think we need to exercise vengeance? What does it boil down to? We don't think God's going to. In other words, sometimes we think there must be some kind of gaps or holes in God's righteousness, and we better help Him out and fill that in, and we better deal with it ourselves because we're entertaining a fear that God isn't going to. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? But it's helpful to think, trace our thinking pattern down to the bare roots. The Lord says, don't avenge yourself, but give place to wrath. The word place is the word tapos. That's where we get our word topography. I mean, let's, say, let's say you're looking at a map of the Himalayas. 
And right there in the center, there's Mount Everest. You can see its topography on that map. And it's like the Lord is laying out a map of a timeline of human existence and of judgment to come. And He's saying, you see that topographical spot on the map that's labeled vengeance and judgment? That's mine. And you get off that mountain. Give place to it. He says, don't avenge yourself, but get out of the way and let me take care of it in my wrath. Now let's say you worked or a man works for the railroad company. And he's given this strange assignment. He's told to go out in the wilderness and walk down this railroad track and check for defects there uh, in the track line. And so there he is carrying out the commission of his superior. And he sees this huge tunnel coming. He didn't like tunnels so much, but he walks through with his flashlight and he's inspecting the track. And eventually his flashlight runs into a big set of shoes. He looks up and he sees this just Herculean man standing there, nine feet tall and 400 pounds and hairy. And the guy's bellowing at him, you're not going any further. He says, well, I have a, a commission from my master to walk through here. The man says, I don't care for your master. He begins to curse and he begins to hurl rocks. Now get off the track. Well, the man has a choice to make and eventually he just walks down and he climbs down off the track and he just sits there on a stump. Well, the large hairy man begins to mock and he says, what are you doing doing nothing? Aren't you going to come and fight me? Aren't you going to deal with the situation? He says, friend, I'm not doing nothing exactly. I just got off the track. Because I look at my watch here and I know within an hour, there's a freight train coming. And it's got a hundred cars loaded with iron ore and it's moving at 60 miles an hour. And you see, wisdom dictates, I'm getting off the track because that train's coming. And I got news for you. When that train comes, you're going to move. In a very real sense, that's what this is telling you and I to do with these things that are in God's place to judge. Our tendency is to say, I've got to take care of it. God is saying, get out of the way. Stop interfering with it. Get off the track because the freight train's coming. And it may be long delayed. But it's coming. Remember Revelation 6.10? Here's the martyred saints and they're crying out to God. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost Thou not judge and avenge? Same word. Dost Thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And God doesn't say, well now, He shouldn't be thinking that way. What did He say? He basically told them, give place under wrath. He told him it's going to be just a little longer. Here's some white robes to remind you of the righteousness I've given you. You just wait a minute because judgment is going to come. God says give it to Him. Why? Not because He's not going to do anything, but because He will repay. Do you think that fallen immortal creatures like us can ever take vengeance to the degree and severity that God can. 
But do you realize not one thing is going to be forgotten at that judgment? Not one. Let's say a person hates you like that and fights against you and hates God and they, they perish and they're called back up at judgment. It's just not the way they treated you that's called. It's everything that's called up. The earth will be destroyed there. This current cosmos will be burned up and there they'll be suspended at God's pavilion as the books are opened and their case is laid out. Justice is on its way. The freight train's coming. I mean, think about it, friend. There's going to be no unbroken souls in hell. None. All will bow. All will see the truth. All will face regret. All will be humbled. But it's not your place to force that on anybody. Do you think it might produce compassion in our own heart? If instead of remembering all the things this person's done against you or I, but start thinking about the freight trains coming. I mean, the fact that every proud peacock among men is going to be plucked down to goosebumps and laid bare before God. Listen, all the proud strutting sons of Adam are going to have their knees broken by the rod of Christ's ruling power. It's going to be dealt with. I think that this is reminding us it's not your place to judge, but God is going to do it and He's going to do it decisively. So instead of worrying about fixing the score, start worrying about what can be done for this person's condition. I think that's the mindset of why uh, verse 20 says what it does. Therefore, because God's going to repay, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heat coals of fire on his head. Now that's a quotation from Proverbs 25. And someone says, now what, what, what does that mean? It can be taken a few different ways. I'll give a couple that I don't think is the correct interpretation. One is obviously, you're going to fry that rascal's scalp. Good, I want to burn his head. I want to give him some payback. I want to singe his eyebrows off. That's not what it's saying. God's saying, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Therefore, give drink. Uh, give food. Some of you have heard the uh, historical context perhaps put into this that there was a custom back in those days people would carry coals of fire on their head and uh, to light their own fire and it was looked at as a symbol of uh, being nice to take coals off your own fire and scoop it into their pot so they could carry it and, and warm their home. I understand where that's coming from, but that also I don't think really is what this is saying. I don't think that fits the context exactly. I think this is more in line. You remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 3.16? Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. You remember it was said of Paul, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What pricks was he talking about? How many of you ever cook with a Dutch oven? Uh, depending on the size of the Dutch oven and what's inside, I'm told that roughly... If you want to increase the temperature 12 degrees, you add another charcoal briquette. It, uh, it turns the heat up. 
So every time you give place to wrath, every time you bless those that persecute you, every time you take pains to actively live in peace with difficult individuals, every time you refuse to pay somebody back tit for tat when it's in your hands to do so, every time you treat them kindly when they hate you for Christ's sake, two things happen. Number one, you give God His rightful dominion and you find rest of soul knowing He's going to take care of it ultimately. But here's the other thing that happens. Another coal gets put on the fire. And the heat in that person's conscience gets turned up. And the Holy Spirit has more to bring to their remembrance. And this heat, more often than not, is what finally brings them to Christ. So it's not passively running the other direction. It's actively working in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the truth. To turn up the spiritual thermostat until the fire becomes unbearable. And they repent or perish. So you see, it's not passivity. God is telling you, go after the soul of that person with kindness. Start laying on the coals. That'll show them their own iniquity. That'll make them ashamed when they understand the truth that's really coming out. Then he says, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. How is a believer overcome with evil? You can't lose the Holy Spirit. You cannot lose, if you belong to Christ, forgiveness of sins. But you can be neutralized as far as spiritual power and joy are concerned. You see, evil overcomes by festering within, by not being properly dealt with, becoming bitterness. Evil overcomes by causing us to react sinfully, to fight with the wrong weaponry. Evil overcomes by making you lose sight of the sovereign hand of God and all that has happened. Evil overcomes by making you bent on vengeance, on payback, forgetting that's God's department and not yours. Evil also overcomes by making you forget the monstrous iniquity that you were guilty of and how you yourself are nothing more than a brand plucked from the fire and a trophy of grace and all you have to brag about is the blood of Christ on your behalf. And it says, be not overcome, but you are to do the overcoming. Not merely lie down and take your beating, but charge the very gates of hell expecting the victory. You've heard me say it before. Matthew 16, the Lord says to the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. My view on that, gates do not move. Gates are stationary. So that's not a picture of defense with the church cowering here with hell coming after it. It's a picture of the church going after to storm the very gateway of hell itself to get people to not go there. And he says, against that onslaught, the gates of hell are not going to prevail. And one of the books I've been reading recently is about the men called the Apostles of the Pines. They were these big brawny lumberjack evangelists who preached the gospel in the lumberjack mining camps in northern Minnesota in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And quite a story concerning these men. They brought a lot of people to Christ. But the third of them in succession in the early 1900s, his name was Al Channer. He'd been a former prize fighter, tough guy. He's converted to Christ by the preaching of one of these other men in the camps. And 
he saw some success. He saw lives transformed. And eventually he's asked to go to Michigan to preach a series of revival, meeting, revival meetings in this town called Antrim, Michigan that was basically looked at as a God-forsaken Sodom and Gomorrah. There was one church building in the town that had been boarded up decades ago and no minister dared come into the place. It was looked at as too far gone. There was one Christian woman, as far as I know, in the city. She was a Methodist. And uh, she'd long since given up on the adult population and had permission to minister to a few of the children in the Sunday school. Well, Al Chanters asked, Hey, will you go to this town and try to hold some revival meetings? So I'll give it a shot. Spend some time preparing. Of course, the tavern owners are howling with indignation. In fact, the... But one of the lumber owners that had sent him over to preach actually sent a couple of bodyguards with pickaxes to preserve him when he walked through town. This town was lawless. Murders happened frequently. Bodies left thrown in the woods and ditches in the streets. Justice rarely served. People would disappear if they didn't like you. And nobody asked any questions. Nobody bothered with marriage in the town. Everybody just lived with everybody else and switched partners as they saw fit. And so Channer begins to come and to tell the people we're going to have a revival meeting. And that first night, the place is packed because mainly sheer curiosity. People are wondering who's brazen enough to try something like this in this town, knowing its reputation. Well, Channer gets up and he preaches that first message on thou shalt not commit adultery. And he finishes the message with, whose wife are you with tonight? Whose wife are you with tonight? Well, half the people leave deeply moved. The other half leave trading bets that he's not going to live through the week. Next night, he gets up to preach. There's a note on the pulpit. It says, if you attempt to preach again tonight, you'll be shot before the sermon ends. Take your warning and leave now. Well, he sees that note. So he reads it to everybody. And he just stared at him until the silence was painful. And then he laughed. And he said, can somebody open the windows, please? He said, if I'm going to get shot tonight, I want to look at the face of the coward who'd shoot an unarmed man. And then he went on preaching. Next day, someone asked him, have you heard of John? He said, John who? He said, you wouldn't ask John who if you knew John. Well, they described this just hulk of a man, this bruiser who'd crippled several people in town in fistfights. He was a terror to the village. So next night, Channer's preaching, and based on the description, John, he sees John walk in. John comes down to the front, takes one look at a guy, the guy runs out of his seat so John can sit down. Remember that Methodist lady? One of the little girls she had up here singing runs down to John, wraps her arms around his neck, and says, Daddy, I love Jesus. Won't you love him too? Big John got up, he stormed out. But he was back the next night. The sermon ended. He didn't even make it to the front. He fell down in the middle of the aisle and he collapsed under the weight of his sin. Next thing you know, that man's leading the prayer meeting in town. And Seventy plus of those hardened sinners were converted and the place was transformed. You see, another enemy of the cross was slain. He was destroyed. He was turned into a son. He took the pleadings of a little daughter, to destroy that man. 
It's a well-worn cliche that all of us have heard. You can't fight fire with fire. Although technically you can fight a forest fire with fire by lighting backfires, but we'll leave that one out. <laughs> I'm in Montana. Somebody's going to call that one, right? But some say you can't fight fire with fire. You can't fight the fires of hell with the hellish fires of rage and carnal bitterness and vindictiveness. You overcome evil and destroy your enemies with good, with light, with truth, with love, with expectancy, with patience, with excuse me, with prayer, with faith, with blessings, with cheerfulness. With the blood of Christ, which can quench all the flames of hell in a man's soul. By keeping your eyes on the day when God is going to set all things straight. What does this life really represent on a timeline of eternity? It's barely a speck. Friends, listen, your enemies, if they don't know Christ, 10,000 years from now, are still going to be staring at the endless flames of God's judgment. Can't that help us to look at people in the right light? You see, friend, part of our problem is we think the enmity is really against us and we take personal offense. That's not the case. You're walking with God and they hate you. It's not you they really hate. It's your master. And the Lord had said, Marvel not if this world hate you. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. You see, even the disciples were tempted to think this was an interesting and strange thing. It wasn't. So, how's your warfare going this morning? Are there people in your life you would call an enemy? That you know you're fighting with the wrong weapon? You see, in a sense, even as a Christian, in a sense you can behave like Saul of Tarsus in Acts 8, breathing out threatenings and slaughter as the destroyer. Or you can respond like Saul of Tarsus in Acts 16, the destroyer, who brought the Philippian jailer to the feet of Christ. Do you know Christ at all this morning? If you don't, you can today. You see, the Bible makes it so plain, what keeps us out of Christ is us. It's our refusal to yield. It's a matter of the will. Unbelief isn't merely an act. It's a state we remain in. We dance around the issue. We refuse to take the sacrifice that Christ gave. Why? Because it strikes such a blow to our pride. Why? If I did that, I'd have to acknowledge what a wretched sinner I am. Oh, I'd have to change my ways too. Yeah, you would. But is it worth pining away this existence? Grasping for your own bit of pleasure? Hanging on to your own bit of wisdom when it's all going to burn up and perish? Oh, if only hell could be recorded right this moment. To hear the agony, to hear the regret, to hear the pleas of those who would tell you, it's not worth it. Only blackness remains. That's it. But it doesn't have to be this way for you. 
You can believe in Christ now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for teaching us not just how to deal with brothers and sisters in Christ, but with those who seem to be enemies against us. Father, these words are difficult for us. They run against our nature. But I pray you'd give us a, a forward vision for dealing with these situations. I thank you you haven't left us to simply do nothing. But you've given us a tremendous and powerful arsenal of weapons. Love and goodness and blessing and kindness and faith are far more powerful in the eternal realm than any weapon mankind can create. What all man can come up with is destruction. But Lord, you destroy men so that they might live. Lord, if anyone in here is not yet a believer in Christ, I pray you would utterly destroy them for their own good. Destroy their attempts to dress up their own religious life. Destroy their attempts to make excuses. Destroy their attempts to try to act like a Christian when they know and they know they're not. Destroy their hiding places. Destroy their peace that's flimsy at best. And Lord, out of that destruction, give real life, real peace, real sonship, real joy, real hope. Help us, Lord, as we acquire enemies in this life, which we will. Help us to look beyond this barren land, beyond the words and the curses and the looks and the actions and to see what's really going on. And Lord, to have a sense of expectancy that no matter how hard the outward countenance is, Your Word is powerful. Help us to heat coals in the fire. That they might be broken at the foot of the cross. Thank You, Father, for Your, for your patience with us. In Jesus' name, Amen.